1: Tonight, we
0: apply our patent-bending Stanley rubric to Major League from 1989, directed and written by David S. Ward, starring Tom Beringer, Corbin Burnson, Rene Russo, Charlie Sheen, and Bob Uecker. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be discussing probably the preeminent hockey movie of all time, Slapshot from 1977, directed by George Roy Hill, written by Nancy Dowd, starring Paul Newman and Strother Martin. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. All right. With that, Dad,
1: what is your relationship to this movie? Oh, do I have a relationship to this movie? It was filmed in Milwaukee at Milwaukee County Stadium. So not only every time I watch the film, it brings back memories of my childhood, of going with my parents and my, well, the woman I used to share parents with, to the uh, baseball games. But the other thing is, is this brings up one of the few regrets I have in my life, which is They put out a call. I was in law school at Marquette Law School at the time in Milwaukee. And they wanted people to come out to be in the crowd. And they were going to pay you a nominal amount of money to sit in the crowd for this film. And I decided not to do it. And in retrospect, I could have been in a movie. I could, every time this movie goes, hey, look, I would have been right there. But no, I didn't. So a major regret. But I remember when it was being filmed. I remember how they talked about it on Milwaukee radio stations. I remember Bob Euchre talking about it. I remember when they changed the outfield padding from green to blue to accommodate the film. This was right in my wheelhouse while I was in Milwaukee. Okay. And what would you say about the cultural impact
0: at the time of this movie's release?
1: Well, this is at the same time. Bob Uecker, uh was given this part. He basically ad-libbed almost all of his lines. And it's at the same time, Bob Eucher was very popular doing the Miller Lite commercials. It was on the tail end of that. And Bob Eucher used to be a regular on the Johnny Carson uh, Tonight Show and such. And so people talked about this film, especially where I was in Milwaukee, and when this came out and was released and people went to see it, thought it was just absolutely hilarious. Um, there's two former Brewers in the cast. The, the first baseman from the Yankees was Pete Vukovic, who won Cy Young for the Brewers in 82. And then the closer at the end of the movie is Willie uh, Mueller, who was a uh, relief pitcher for the Brewers in the late 70s, early 80s. People really related to this movie and what was going on. You have to understand that there would have been about 20 years before this movie was released a book called Ball Four by Jim Boughton, who had been a pitcher for the Yankees. And it kind of lifted the veil off of baseball and showed how these guys are really big kids playing and having fun and goofing around and doing all kinds of bizarre things. And I think people really related to that in this film and what a lot of people, and I think even major league baseball players did was uh, say that this was fairly accurate as to what really goes on over the course of the 162 game season in the clubhouse and on the road. And given recent Statements by
0: particularly the NFL about tanking, and even in Cleveland, the premise doesn't even seem that far-fetched.
1: No. No, it doesn't. All
0: right, so the last question I would have to kind of set this contextually
1: up for everybody would simply be, is this movie completely out of date at this point? Yes and no. It is not out of date from what goes on in a major league clubhouse. And what takes place for the most part, other than the fact that the league minimum salary, when Tom Berger is in with that lawyer and he's going, well, I make the league minimum. Okay. The league minimum is like $850,000 a year. That's not a small amount of money. When he says it, it was not the
0: league minimum at the time. That's the league minimum no. now. We're talking that that would have been like one of the highest paid players in baseball in 1989. Because one of the stats that I like to bring out consistently is in 1990, the Brewers had the two highest paid players in baseball. I think Paul Molitor was making $2 million a year, and Robin Yount was making $1.5 million a year. And by the end of the decade, in 1999, Alex Rodriguez was signing a 10-year contract for $252 million with the Texas Rangers.
1: So it's outdated to the extent of the money involved, but what takes place within the clubhouse is not outdated. The other aspect that's outdated is I don't think this connects with the fans. Baseball has some fundamental problems or flaws right now, and unless they can resolve them in very short order, there's going to be some major problems with attendance in the future. Well,
0: I stated it from a couple of different standpoints that I was going to bring up for the classicness grade eventually when we got to it. But the Cleveland Indians don't even exist anymore.
1: No. This will be the first year that we have the Cleveland Guardians. Well, if you look in the opening sequence with Randy Newman's uh, song playing, they show the, the Guardian on the bridge. Yes, I
0: did find that in the research as well. The other things, and I would guess that these are some things that you were kind of alluding to, but I'll make them more explicit here. Baseball was probably the national sport in 1989. And at this point, I would say it's probably down there near hockey, maybe just above it.
1: Actually, I think football's number one. College football is number two. Basketball is number three. And then a distant fourth is baseball, and not far below is hockey.
0: If you're going to divide football up, you have to divide basketball. Because I think college basketball outplays Major League Baseball at
1: this point. Preseason football gets better ratings than World Series games. Yeah. And the reason I make that distinction is, is college football games. It was a game. It was like Troy v- versus um, I don't know Middle Tennessee that outviewed. Uh, Uh, A baseball playoff game uh, about five years ago. Outrated. Outrated. That's a better phrasing.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of things, even from the city of Cleveland and, and downtrodden and the rest, but the Indians were not a forlorn franchise for very much longer after this movie. I mean, they were one of the best teams of the 90s. They got to the World Series twice. They've gone to it another time after that. They were at least... A collection of really good talent for a, a number of years basically in the last 30 since this movie's gone on. The city of Cleveland has won a title even if it took the best or and probably worst second best basketball player and one of the most historic collapses of all time in order to do it. I don't know. This This movie seems kind of like,
1: and I know you hated this term, but relic. <sighs> I don't know if it's a relic per se. I mean, it, it it's a microcosm of where it was at that particular moment in time, but there are a ton of other teams. Cleveland made a turnaround when they hired John Hart, who was a, a fairly intelligent general manager who decided to build from the uh, farm system up, and kind of implemented the first concepts of Moneyball, wasn't quite to the extent that Billy Bean employed when he was with the A's and the film Moneyball King, you know, was based on that. But John Hart was kind of in that era and made trades, did things that were unusual, brought a lot of talent up. It, it changed. I think baseball has become more competitive than it used to be. It used to be that there was always the top, you know, group of teams that were going to win. Every once in a while you would have a team that would come out and, and kind of get in the upper echelons and, and be able to uh, compete, but it didn't, it didn't stay long. Okay, but the irony of all ironies
0: that makes this movie, ages this movie, eight years after this, the Cleveland franchise was the favorite to win the World Series against the Miami franchise that was the new upstart. Which is where she wanted to move the team in the movie, and they lost. I know. Just saying. So, if you were to give the elevator pitch about what this movie is,
1: what would you say? The individual parts do not necessarily exemplify the collective whole.
0: Can a bunch of cast-offs and nobodies actually be better together? Yes. Yes. I think this is a best, well, this might be one of the best ensemble sports movies that we probably have. I think there are a lot of sports movies that are led by like one seminal great actor who's the coach or whatever, or maybe the star player. And you might have like a small handful, but it doesn't seem like you have a large collection of them that all seem to fit and have good chemistry together. This is one of the rare
1: examples that that's the case. I would agree with that. I think I think there's a lot of that situation, but there's nobody that's a real huge star. Even Tom Baringer at the time was well-known, but not a huge star. He had been in...
0: He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Platoon.
1: Correct, but before that, he had, he had gotten his real start, and I'm drawing a blank as to the name of the collective film that... Uh, Johnny Carson produced, The Big Chill. His four primary
0: claims to fame are this, Platoon, The Big Chill, and then that almost like a cameo portion in
1: Inception. (laughs) Because he did nothing after this movie. Yes. His uh, career kind of uh, petered out. That's one
0: way of putting it. There are a lot of people in this movie that... You might know from other stuff and went on to have bigger careers, but two of the title card people in this movie, Tom Beringer and Corbin Burnson, really do
1: not have much to say for their career outside of this movie. Yeah. Corbin Burnson had gotten into this movie after a very successful run on LA law. And this was supposed to be his catapult into film from television. And I don't think it really did very much for him. No, because his second biggest credit outside of this movie
0: happens to be a TV show where he's the dad.
1: (laughs) Yes, uh,
0: Psych, wasn't it? Correct. And now he's stuck doing these reoccurring TV movies like every two years. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway,
1: do you have a plot summary ready for us? Oh, I do. Former Las Vegas showgirl Rachel Phelps Margaret Witten, inherits the Cleveland Indians baseball team from her deceased husband. Phelps hates Cleveland and wants to relocate the team to Miami, but to do so, she needs attendance for the entire season to be below 800,000. Determined to put together the worst team in the major league so there's absolutely no fan interest, Phelps hires Lou Brown, James Gammon, to manage the team of nobodies and has-beens including overpriced Roger Dorn, Corbin Burnson, voodoo-practicing Cuban defector Pedro Serrano, Dennis Hasbert, catcher Jake Taylor, Tom Baringer, a brash speedster Willie Mays Hayes, Wesley Snipes, and a former felon pitcher Rick Vaughn, Charlie Sheen. Will Phelps get the team she desperately wants, or will they put it all together?
0: By the way, and this should probably go in remaining questions, but where does Dennis Haysbert's Cuban accent rank among
1: the worst accents in film? <laughs> uh, anytime Tom Hanks has to do a Bostonian accent. This was only like one movie. Points if you can rename
0: the movie. With Tom Hanks? Where he had to do a Boston accent? Yes.
1: Oh, what was the, f- the name of the film where. It was about a storm. Uh, he was a boat, or he was a ship captain. The perfect storm. That's George Clooney. I thought he was in that. He was not. Okay.
0: Then I can't. It was a Spielberg film with DiCaprio.
1: I thought he had to do one other time. I don't remember it. Yes, if he did, but that's the one that comes to mind immediately. Yes, and that would have been Catch Me If You Can. That is correct. Very underrated film. Which way. we will be covering eventually
0: on this show, but we've probably done too many Spielberg movies so far and need to kind of get some other people in here. All right, cast for this movie, Tom Beringer as Jake Taylor, the catcher, Charlie Sheen as Ricky Wild Thing Vaughn, the starting pitcher relief pitcher, Corbin Burnson as Roger Dorn, third baseman, Margaret Witten as Rachel Phelps, James Gammon as Lou Brown, the manager, Renee Russo as Lynn Westland, Bob Uecker as Harry Doyle. Wesley Snipes as Willie Mays Hayes, center fielder. Charles Cyphers as Charlie Donovan, GM. Chelsea Ross as Eddie Harris, the starting pitcher. Dennis Haysbert as Pedro Serrano, who never actually gets a position in the movie. Andy Romano as Pepper Leach, first base coach. Kip Powers as Cooper Vaughn. Steve Yeager as Duke Temple, third base coach. Pete Vukovich as Haywood, the Yankees' first baseman and Willie Miller as, or is it Mueller? Mueller. As Duke Simpson, Yankees' relief pitcher. Recognition for this movie, the film debuted at number one at the U.S. box office and received generally positive reviews. It grossed almost $50 million in the U.S. and Canada and $25 million internationally for a for a worldwide total of $75 million. Major League holds an eighty-five. Th- Major League holds an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 62 score on Metacritic. The film was recognized by American Film Institute as a nominee to the 10 Top 10 list for sports films in 2008. The success of the original film spawned two sequels, Major League 2 and Major League Back
1: to the Miners. Which one do you think actually has a worse rating? <laughs> uh, I don't even, I, I would not venture to guess because I watched them both. Did you know? David S. Ward is actually a lifelong Cleveland
0: Indians fan. His inspiration for creating the movie was simply because he thought it would be the only way he would ever see the Indians actually win anything. Did you know? According to David S. Ward, Wesley Snipes was not a very skilled baseball player in real life, never having played much of it before. Ward said Snipes was so awful at throwing a baseball that they did not have any scenes of him throwing the ball. Did you know? When director David S. Ward asked Bob Euchre to play Harry Doyle in the film, Ward had chosen Euchre because of his acting work in Miller Lite ads and on the sitcom Mr. Belvedere. It wasn't until Ward met Euchre that he learned that Euchre had been, for nearly 20 years, the radio broadcaster for the Milwaukee Brewers. (laughs) Did you know? Harry Doyle's line, just a bit outside, which became one of the film's more memorable and imitated catchphrases, was not in the script. Euchre improvised the line and several others under initial encouragement from David S. Ward. Did you know? For many of the wide crowd scenes of the climactic playoff game, there were over 20,000 extras in the stands. When the team first ran onto the field with the crowd roaring, Dennis Haysbert admitted to being emotionally overwhelmed by the experience. Former major leaguer and technical advisor Steve Yeager noticed Haysbert's reaction and said to him, That's what it's like 162 times a year. Did you know? After Vaughn strikes out Haywood, he is congratulated in the dugout by a player named Keltner. Ken Keltner was the third baseman on the 1941 Indians whose fielding heroics helped end Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hit streak. Did you know? In the scene where Jake invades Lynn's party, one of the guests asks how much Jake makes in the majors. He replies, I make the league minimum. At the time, in 1989, The Major League Baseball minimum salary was $68,000. Average household income in 1990 was roughly $30,000. So he's making a very respectable double the average household income. Did you know? The restaurant where Lynn Westland, Renee Russo, is spotted on a date is in Milwaukee. It was at the time a gourmet restaurant, then stood empty for a time, and then was a Russian restaurant and dance club. It again sat empty for a period and is currently a Baptist church as of 2005. Did you know? The theatrical release includes added scenes of Rachel Phelps showing dismay with the team's success. An alternate scene included on the Wild Thing Edition DVD shows a very different characterization of Phelps. Lou Brown confronts Phelps over her plan to sabotage the team and announces his resignation. Phelps then reveals the threatened move to Miami was merely a ruse to motivate the team as the Indians were on the verge of bankruptcy when she inherited them and she could not afford to hire star players or maintain standard amenities. She also tells Lou that she felt he was the right manager to bring the ragtag group together. Lou does not resign, but Phelps reasserts her authority by saying that if he shares any part of their conversation with anyone, she will fire him. The film's producer said that while the twist ending worked as a resolution of the plot, they scrapped it because test audiences preferred the Phelps character as a villain. With that, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, best performance for you.
1: Oh, well, Bob Euchre. Agreed. He makes the movie. I mean, yes. He's <laughs> just phenomenal. There's no part of his performance that isn't hilarious. Even when he's trying to be serious, he's uh, hilarious by far. The fact that they put him in this film really kind of made the film. I don't think it would have been nearly as successful but for Bob Euchre. To be quite honest, even the lines that we've
0: so often quoted of his that are just iconic, when I was looking up the best funniest lines, some of the written down ones that seem like throwaways that I don't think I've ever laughed at, all of a sudden I was just giggling at my desk trying to put my notes together. We'll come back around to that, though, when we get best lines. So, yeah, it's an absolute runaway best performance for me when it comes to Bob Euchre. He was the most affable character in the entire film when a lot of them seemed rather wooden. If you ask me, like I, the more I watch this movie, the less I seem to relate to and understand why you wanted your leading man to be Tom Beringer.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. And I can also tell why Corbin Bernson has only been in TV.
1: Yeah, I, I, I never thought much of Corbin Bernson. Um I was not a big fan of L.A. Law. It was on while I was in law school, and I thought it was so idiotic as far as the show itself, and I thought he so overacted throughout the show. I never understood exactly why anybody thought he was going to be able to make the leap into, com- or into uh, movies. I don't know either. Best secondary performance? Charlie Sheen. Agreed again. Yep, because clearly, you know, Charlie Sheen's had his demons. Uh, That's you know. <laughs> an understatement. Yeah. Well, I mean, his latest meltdown where he was, that was in part induced by the fact that he found out he was HIV positive, apparently. And uh, But when he is on, he is so good. And obviously he has problems outside of doing a film and, and playing his part, but he just has a certain look, an ability to be vulnerable, and yet be cocky at the same time. This is the third big movie of his that I can think of
0: off just off the top of my head from the late 80s. Two of them are Oliver Stone movies and this one. So he has Platoon, he has Wall Street, and he has this. And you can see from all three performances that he was a movie star. The fact that he got into TV when he did and then became like the biggest TV star was such a coup at the time because you knew this guy had these performances in him. He's one of the most affable, likable characters for one of the most difficult people to probably like on paper. The guy who plays in the California Penal League. (laughs) Yeah, He, again, should not be likable. And yet, by the end of the movie, I think he might be the number
1: one guy on the list that you're rooting for. I know. I I, he, He, again, has this ability to be both cocky and vulnerable at the same time. So then, most charismatic? I have a tie. Okay. Baseball and Milwaukee County Stadium. I mean, the story is about baseball and the story is about... The endurance. I mean, baseball, unlike any other sport, is a 162-game schedule. And at one point, you know, where they talk about it, you know, that's just one. we got 161 more to go. And it it creates a unique situation. It is the ultimate sport where it's like reboot. Every day is reboot. I mean, or it foot- makes every game that much more meaningless. If you want to go that route, fine. Whatever. I'm just saying that, you know, you have a bad game, tomorrow's a different day. And there's a certain charisma about that, that it's just, you have an ability to change the outcome almost every day. And as far as that goes, again, I just picked Milwaukee County Stadium because it just brings back visions of my youth. I mean, my first game was 1970 when I was there uh, with my dad, my grandfather, my uncle Bob, and my dad watching the Brewers play the Oakland Athletics, who were destined to be our a, a World Series team the next year. And there's just a magical place. Yeah, by the time this film was done, it was kind of a dump. <laughs> and it needed to be replaced, but it's still just a kind of a magical place because it carried so many memories.
0: I think you're confusing most charismatic with most nostalgic.
1: Okay, fine. So you can can define it how you want. This is my definition, and this is what I'm saying is charismatic because I think that there was something bigger than normal by the presentation of the game and the stadium than nor- than what n- most people would normally see. It is, to me, charismatic because it speaks to me, and that's ultimately, charismatic is where it speaks to you beyond what is there. And to me, baseball and the stadium were unique. It was in an era where... Stadiums mattered and people talked in baseball about the different stadiums because it's the only sport where every place you played, the home team, had a unique location. Every line was different. Every outfield configuration was different. And yet all the stats are supposed to mean the same. Yes, I understand. So, I mean, what was it? 508 to center field at the polo grounds? I think it was farther than that. I think it was six something. <laughs> yeah, because you know, the and, dead center, they had that
0: like cutout or whatever that uh, went even further.
1: I can tell you, t- there still tell you the uh, foul lines at Old County Stadium. It was three fifteen down left field line. It was three seventeen down right field line, and four oh eight to dead center.
0: Anyway, as far as my most charismatic, I went with a much more traditional choice. I went with Wesley Snipes. I don't think it's any coincidence that this is pretty much his first big movie, and he goes on to be a fairly major movie star of the early 90s, pretty much coinciding after this movie. The question for me is why he didn't end up doing more comedies. He's clearly an affable and charismatic, likable guy that could pull off kind of a quirky sense of humor And I know he's kind of a small character by comparison in this movie, whereas in some of his other stuff, he was really the leading guy. And that's usually supposed to be the straight man. But you could see that he had the chops to be able to do this type of work. And I'm not sure why he didn't end up doing similar career choices for the rest of it, especially given the popularity of this movie. Maybe he didn't want to be typecast, but I don't know. I thought he was a fantastic addition to this cast and really rounded out exactly what this cast was supposed to be, an eclectic bunch of nobodies. And he was at the time, but you could see enough there that would lead you to believe or at least give you credence to understand how his career blossomed after this. Best scene. The nominees that I have down. Opening meeting. Spring training. I look like a banker. Vaughn gets control. Phelps stops coddling. Donovan reveals all. Win the whole fucking thing. Winning streak montage, Serrano hits a curveball, wild thing, and Taylor calls his shot. Did I miss any?
1: No, actually, I think that covers everything. Okay, so best scene then. I think the montage of starting to win kind of is the turning point, the centerpiece of the movie. I think that ultimately reflects where the film is going and really exemplifies what the film was trying to accomplish.
0: I think I'll agree with you. I had a hard time putting my finger on what's the best scene because I think they all collectively pull in the right direction. But the one thing that I noticed a lot in watching this movie kind of for the show, and we've said repeatedly, it doesn't matter how many times you've watched a movie, you watch it differently when you're doing it for the show, is that they really got the pulse of what it feels like when your team is going on a title run or going on like a really a playoff chase or something of that nature. And the community starts to rally behind you. I think that is one of the few things that I think they really got right with this movie. And that's probably the one scene that really exemplifies it more than any other. So I'll go with your choice there as the best scene as well. Favorite scene. Go ahead. So I have down Taylor calls his shot. It kind of defies a lot of the expectations in how you would end a movie by comparison to just about every other baseball movie that has a really dramatic final moment. Somebody hits a walk-off home run or in the naturals case, hits a home run that basically shatters all of the lights and everything goes off like fireworks behind him as he's rounding the bases. This movie has one of the most muted final plays. If you described it to anybody and said, this is how they won the game. They would look at you like, Why did somebody write that for a movie? He bunts, and the guy scores from second. Yes. And that does have some satisfaction and can be somewhat of a satisfying ending because it would be an exciting play in a potential playoff-clinching win. But still, it's kind of a muted thing, and it defies the expectations you have when he starts pointing to the bleachers and they compare him to Babe Ruth. Well, actually,
1: the scene is not... Without basis, in fact, I think there have been several situations where a player has bunted the ball and ended up driving in a winning run from a guy who was at second who was extremely fast. Yeah, but not necessarily in a playoff
0: situation. You wouldn't think that they'd be that risky, especially with no outs in the inning. Was
1: there no outs in the inning? I thought there was... Billy Mays hayes leads off the inning. I didn't think so. I thought Dorn made it out. No. Dorn bats
0: after he does. He's the third one in the lineup. He's on deck when Taylor hits. Okay. Hayes leads off the inning, and then he bunts for the single, which also kind of ruins the whole dramaticness of Taylor having to leg out a, f- a single to first base. He does not need to make it to first base in order for May or Hayes to try and steal home. Yeah. He just has to be enough that he's diverting the throw.
1: That well, would have made more sense if it would have been two out. Exactly. But they don't have that. I don't know. I guess I always assumed there were two outs.
0: Maybe I'm wrong. I It was something I only picked up on this viewing, but it was one of those things I'm like, oh, that didn't occur to me before. Yeah. Most indelible moment? Any scene that Bob Uecker was talking yeah, that's what I had down. It, it's not a scene or a moment. It's just Bob Euchre. Every single moment that Bob Uecker is on screen, he shines.
1: Yes, and Bob is 88 years old. He's still in the booth doing home games for the Brewers. And he's like the team mascot. Yes, he is. I mean, they were, uh, what was it, a couple years ago when they got, and they won the, the division and, And such, they waited the celebration until Bob was able to get down from the booth into the locker room to participate. They didn't crack the champagne. They didn't do anything until he arrived. He is the last of probably the institutionalized
0: baseball broadcasters. When he goes, it will be the end of, you know, at this point, Vince Scully has retired. Jack Buck's dead. And all of the other major people are either dead or gone.
1: Red Barber, Jerry Coleman, Harry Callis. Harry Callis, Ernie Harwell. Yeah, they're gone. I do think there will be somewhat of
0: a league-wide mourning when he passes.
1: Well, I think so. And there should be. When I was a kid, just to express how what this meant, okay, I was on the tail end of where baseball was. Baseball was radio broadcasts for the most part. Baseball transcended the the urban areas. It went into the rural areas, but it did so by radio. And your local radio broadcaster was almost like a part of your family from April until October. And uh, you had them, invited them into your home almost every night. You might be doing other things, but you had the baseball game on your radio. I remember as a kid laying and watching TV on the floor, and I would have my tra- or my little portable transistor radio with me, and I would have Bob Buecher on. I'd be listening to the Brewer games and watching television. And I'd keep an ear on what was going on, because baseball wasn't on television consistently. The only time you got really baseball and TV was Saturdays, and it was the game of the week and whatever. So, baseball announcers and radio, or especially radio announcers, were your conduit to baseball. And they all had their own unique personalities, and Bob Eucher was on the tail end of that. He came in and started doing Brewer games in 1970 when the team moved to Milwaukee. He became the primary play-by-play guy about 1974 or 5, and he has been a huge part of my life. I'm 58. I can't remember ever listening to baseball or enjoying baseball where Bob Uecker was not a part of it.
0: All right. With that, we will take our second break, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad, before we get too much
1: further into the movie, do we have anyone to remember this week? I have one. Marvin Chomsky, American film and TV director, Emmy award-winning director, um, who directed projects such as Roots and Star Trek, Gunsmoke, and the Wild Wild West. I would assume that's the TV show. I would believe so, too. I don't think that he would be
0: credited as one of his primary claims to fame, uh, the movie that Will Smith rates as his worst. I would agree with that totally. So we had another addition this afternoon. Unfortunately, the longtime character actor, who I did not realize until I started looking through all of his projects, how many things he has been in. But Paul Herman, 76 American actor, uh, passed away. He has been in Goodfellas, The Irishman, The Sopranos, where he was Beansy, Once Upon a Time in America, American Hustle, Entourage, where he played the accountant, and Silver Linings Playbook, where he was the best friend to Robert De Niro. This guy's been in a lot more than that. These were just some of the few ones that I picked off the top. So he's been in a lot of different things for a number of years, and unfortunately, he passed away as well. One other name that I'd like to mention is, Not necessarily that he passed away, but I think for the most part, depending on what the underlying cause is, his career might be effectively over at this point. Not that he's been doing major acting work for quite a while at this point, but Bruce Willis, unfortunately, has announced that he's stepping away from his acting career at this point due to, I think it's pronounced aphasia, Yes, which apparently is a cognitive disorder that makes you incapable of communicating either spoken or written language or being able to understand it. That's unfortunate and a very sad conclusion to what at one time was probably the preeminent action star of his time. That's very
1: unfortunate, I think, to a large extent. Just the simple fact that it was not a statement he made, but it was a statement made by his daughters and by his ex-wife. And current wife. I'd Don't want to exclude her either. Correct. He was not involved. So my guess is is that he has declined to a point where it's difficult for him to communicate.
0: But as one of probably the 90s biggest Hollywood stars, most recognizable figures, celebrities, etc., for him to be in this stage of his life, it just eventually
1: time comes for us all. Only 67 I know that uh, 30 years ago, if you said, if you were 67, oh, that makes sense. You know, the way longevity is and health and such, 67 is not that old anymore. You sure say that like a 58-year-old. Fuck you. So
0: for the two that we did lose this week, I'm not as familiar with Marvin Chomsky specifically, but I did watch several of his work, and for Paul Herman that I knew from a lot of things, We take a moment here to recognize their contributions with a moment of silence. Thank you. All right, let's move to best, funniest lines. In fact, I think all the best lines in this movie are probably the funniest lines. So we're going to reserve at the end here for a section that's just the Harry Doyle section, and we'll get to that in a second. But any other nominees before that? I will start. Rachel Phelps. The fact is we lost our two best players to free agency. We haven't won a pennant in over 35 years. We haven't placed higher than fourth in the last 15. Obviously, it's time for some changes. This guy here is dead. Cross him off then.
1: <laughs> One of my yeah. uncle's favorite lines. Uh, Lou Brown. Uh, he was an all star in Boston, wasn't he, Charlie Donovan? Yeah, he wound up in the Mexican League, and he had problems with his knees. Pitching coach Lou R- Leach. Wish we had him two years ago, Donovan. We did. Leach, well, four years ago then. Willie Mays Hayes, what the hell league you've been playing in?
0: Rick Vaughn, California Penal. Never heard of it. How'd you end up playing there?
1: Stole a car. Uh, Ricky Vaughn, Uh, trying to finish his complete game. His arm feels like jello, but Jake Taylor, the veteran catcher, tells him to throw it down the middle. Taylor to the hitter or Rexman. You got a chance to be a hero on national TV if you don't blow it. By the way, I saw your wife at pre-lounge last night. Hell of a dancer. He might be very, very proud. And that guy she was with, I'm sure he's a close personal friend and all, but tell me, what was he doing with her panties on his head? Willie really, Maze Hayes. I like I play like Maze and I run like Hayes. Uh Jabu. Fuck you. I do it myself.
0: That's one of your nominees? Yes. I at least went with one of my uncle's other favorite lines. Yo, bartender, Joe Boo needs a refill.
1: <laughs> I assume you're referring to uh John. Yes.
0: Yeah. This is like one of his favorite movies.
1: Yes. Go ahead. I did one. Oh, okay. Taylor Vaughn and Hayes in a fancy restaurant. Vaughn, I look like <laughs> I look like a banker in this.
0: Except you ha- don't have the context of what he says. Yeah, I know.
1: It. He's wearing a shirt or a shirt T-shirt with no sleeves, and this tie is just. He looks like a biker, and then just throws a tie over the top. Yeah, I look like a banker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eddie. What if we don't finish last? Lou, she'll replace you with somebody who will. After this season, you'll be sent back to the minors or given your outright release. Jake, well then, I guess there's only one thing left to do. Roger, what's that? Win the whole fucking thing. I have exhausted my other lines. All I have left
1: are Harry Doyle's. Eddie Harris, veteran pitchers, uh, taking off his shirt. What's that on your chest? Crisco, Bartol, Vagisil. Any one of them will give me another two or three inches drop on my curveball. Of course, if the empires are watching me close, I just put a little jalapeno inside my nose and get it running. And if I load the ball up with a little, you know, just wipe my nose. <laughs> you put snot on the ball? I haven't got an arm like yours. I got to put anything I on it I can find. And someday you will, too.
0: you have any left from the non-Harry Doyle section? No. All right. In case you haven't noticed, and judging by the attendance you haven't, the Indians have managed to win a few here and there and are threatening to climb out of the cellar. They're not on my list. I don't know. Go ahead. Vaughn, a juvenile delinquent in the offseason, in his Major League debut. Vaughn into the windup for his first offering. Just a bit outside, he tried the corner and missed. Ball four. Ball eight. low and Vaughn has walked the bases loaded on 12 straight pitches. Boy, how can these guys lay off pitches that close? <laughs> Just a reminder, fans, about Die Hard Night coming up here in the stadium. Free admission to anyone who is actually alive the last time the Indians won the pennant. <laughs> 35 years prior to that. Yeah. The Post game Show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. Haywood leads the league in most offensive categories, including nose hair. When this guy sneezes, he looks like a party favor. <laughs> Vaughn deals, and Haywood swings and crushes one towards South America. Tomlinson will need a visa to catch this one. It is out of here, and there is nothing left but a vapor trail. Well, you can close the book on Kellner, covers the microphone with hands and turns to Monty. Thank God. <laughs> We don't know where Hayes played last year, but I'm sure he did a hell of a job. Haywood's a convicted felon, isn't he, Monty? Uh, doesn't really say it here. Well, he should be. (laughs) Hayes is picked off. Well, so much for that. Personally, I think we got hosed on that call. And for the Indians, that's one run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got? One goddamn hit? You can't say goddamn on the air. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. (laughs) all right let's go to the stanley rubric legacy first or second oh go ahead so this may be unusual but i gave it a six popular and well-referenced movie pretty much lauded or launched wesley snipes and furthered the career of charlie sheen and made euchre a more nationally known icon of the sport But not many others did much off the back of this movie, and baseball's relevance has really dwindled over the last 30 years and, by extension, this movie. So while I think that, at the time, this was a more revered movie, the legacy after the fact, I think, outside of baseball circles, which have gotten smaller and smaller, have made less of an impact. So I'll go two for an industry standpoint, because I don't think this is lauded as one of the great sports movies of all time, except by certain circles of baseball and four for the audience because I do still think that there is an audience for this, but it's just going to keep shrinking over time as less and less people have probably seen it. So six overall.
1: I still have or I have 4.5 for Legacy. It did uh, well. It continued to do well for a number of years. There's certain lines and quotes from this that continued to permeate. I think it's considered by a lot of people within the industry as being a great baseball film and realistic for what really takes place within the clubhouse and on the field and what with the 4.5. I do give it a step down because baseball is not nearly as prevalent within society as it was. So I went with a 3, so I went with a 7.5 overall. So that's a 6.75 average between us. Impact significance. As I said
0: before, I think this movie was bigger in the moment. It was the number one at the box office. It did reasonably well commercially. It spawned two sequels. We got several movie stars that, at least if not launched, furthered their careers from this. And it was generally positive in the reviews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I went four for industry. I went with a 4.5 for audience because while the industry was not necessarily like this was the best movie of 1989, they at least appreciated it for what it was and were willing to bear out two more unbearable sequels. And the audience was there for two more unbearable sequels. So 4.5 on that, four for the industry, 8.5 overall.
1: Uh, I actually went with a four for uh, the industry because, yes, it did well in the box office and it did spur sequels, but I don't think it was considered to be anything more than just a cash grab. Um, There wasn't anything endearing. There's nothing that was derived in the industry. You know, it wasn't like there was a ton of sports movies or baseball movies that came out after this. Uh, As far as society... There was a large element that watched it. There was a certain element that really didn't give a shit. And having lived through this, I I can tell you, individuals such as your mom, I don't think ever saw the film until I happened to put it on and let her or made her watch it with me on one weekend or something after we were married a couple of years. Never dawned on her that she would even bother to watch it. So I can't give it any higher than a four, simply because. There was a certain impact or a certain segment of society that was like, that's ah, baseball, I don't care. So I went with an eight. I also don't think you
0: can use mom as an anecdote for much of anything when it comes to pop culture and movies. She's been basically absent from both outside of what we tell her to
1: think for about 30 some years. Except that having lived through this time frame, there was a certain segment of people who really. Just didn't care. I'm not disagreeing with that. That's
0: going to be for any movie ever. You don't care about any Avengers or comic book movie or the biggest movie of all time. Actually, the biggest three movies of all time. You actually take a badge of pride that you've never seen them. So there will be pockets of the public that will not care about certain movies. Always. That doesn't mean it does anything else. If the audience is there, the audience is there. Whether it's more effusive or not. So what was your score again?
1: A four for society. So i went more than eight total. So that's an 8.25 average between us. Novelty. I went with a 7.5. I could not give it the complete because, as I indicated earlier, the veil had been lifted from baseball by the book Ball Four. And there was a lot of, there was actually a TV show based on that to kind of show baseball players as to what they really were, which is basically overgrown uh, boys. And I, I, I can't give it complete novelty because of that, but it was semi-novel in how it presented it and, and how it showed the course of pulling together a team in a comical method or manner. So I went with a 7.5 for those reasons.
0: I really straddled the line between probably about three or four different numbers. I settled on a 7, partially because the concept is somewhat original at the time. The baseball portion of it, however, is not. This is pretty run of the mill when it comes to baseball movies. And even the formulaic stuff of setting up the big game and you have certain characters that You know, you need a strikeout at a certain point in time. You need somebody to hit a big home run in a certain spot or any of the the actual sports stuff just seems kind of played out if you've watched enough baseball movies. And this comes after, you know, at least several of the more significant baseball movies that we've ever had. Reasonably, you could basically make an insinuation that this is a cross between the natural and bad news bears. Somewhat. I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but still. One of the things I still do say, though, that it does get right, but I think a lot of uh, baseball movies or, frankly, team sport movies do get right, is the feeling of a city or community coming together for that title run, as I mentioned before. But we get a lot of that in other sports movies, too, so I don't know if that's necessarily unique. I just do think that this is done well in this, so I give it maybe an extra half point here or there. What separates this one is just how funny it is and still is, particularly because of Bob Uecker and how much that still works. And I think it brings at least a a sense of not necessarily outdatedness for comedy, which is rare. And this is a 30-year-old movie. Most comedies that are from this time just start to have probably somewhat faded as far as how funny or not they are. Uh, I look at something like Caddyshack that's nine years before that, and that's starting to really show some age as far as the humor for that for me. And I know that's like one of the funniest things to guys of your generation, but it just, it's kind of found its separation point a little bit as far as the generation gap. But I will give this, the premise is still reusable and novel enough that we can basically base the biggest TV show of the last, what, two, three years. It's entire season. One was basically borrowing this premise, Ted Lasso. Yes, So that's a 7.25 average between us. Football
1: is life. Anyway, classicness. There wasn't any real, you know, cringy points other than the womanizing. I mean, Roger Dorn and, and such. So I had to mark it down a little bit, but it did reflect what was going on. Professional athletes, you know, they had opportunities that they accepted but still i went with a 7.5 because of that this movie makes fun of a guy's religion even though it's voodoo and
0: openly just pokes fun at the character that that's his only distinguishing funny quality is is that he worships a different religion we do that in stark contrast to the guy who despite his alcoholism and all of the other things that he's got going on and is openly reading a Hustler magazine while on the team plane and criticizing the other guy for his lack of Christianity, the, the religious interplay in this one is not necessarily aged well or was probably particularly great at the time. This movie tramples on all of its female characters. The Suzanne Dorn scene is, makes absolutely no sense for its inclusion in this movie, other than to give us a resolution at the end of the game where Roger Dorn punches out Ricky Vaughn, but you could have had that for a number of different things. Anyway, you didn't need to put that on top of this and it made almost no sense with its conclusion. And the Lynn Westland character makes no sense. She's supposedly a powerful independent woman, yet she still continues even up to the point of the end of this movie To choose the deadbeat, if Jake Taylor was any other guy, you would be questioning her sanity, why she keeps coming back to him. And finally, our villain in the movie is like the only primary female lead in this movie. She's the villainess who we'd only get to her being the villainess because she's not supposed to own a sports team because she was the former showgirl wife of the now deceased owner. It doesn't do any favors for any of its female
1: characters at all. And I, I, I would also point out the re, one of the reasons I gave the number and I forgot to mention this was the stripping of her. Uh...
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. That doesn't play particularly well anymore either. So there's also, and I'll bring this back up some significant aging with this movie. One, Cleveland has had a championship since then and is not necessarily the woe-begone sports uh, declining town that it's always depicted as up until that point. Other issues, the Indians might've been the, or have been to the world series three times since this movie and were one of the best teams of the nineties and they're not even the Indians anymore. So all that being said, Euchre is still as funny now as he was then. And the movie still works for me on that level. The premise seems capable. It's believable. The characters don't seem too particularly offbeat. And while this movie does have its flaws, by comparison to some other ones probably of the time, it's not really that different. There isn't any real other cringe factor for me other than Ricky Vaughn might not have been acting for Charlie Sheen for what we know about his tiger blood at this point in time. (laughs) It might have been one of his least acted performances, but... However, the thing that is aged the best is the ragtag team that just kind of figures it out and is littered throughout the history of sports, and especially baseball, where teams consistently come out of nowhere to surprise you with a bunch of nobodies that you're like, who are these fucking guys? I'll go with a 7.5. You need help with the math? No, I think I'm good on
1: my own on this one.
0: It's a 7.5 average between us.
1: Okay, good, because otherwise I would suggest you go back to high school, but not if you're going to be on
0: school board again. Yeah. Rewatchability. This is also a third-tier rewatchable movie for me, so I threw it in the nine category, kind of like Hoosiers from last week.
1: Nine. Um, if it's on, I'll watch it, uh, because this is one where even if I'm having a really shitty day, this is going to make me feel better. So if I'm scanning through, this, the, uh, through the channels and I'm going, oh, Major League. I'm going to sit and watch this for a few minutes because I'll feel better when it's done. Agreed. All right.
0: So that brings us to audience score. We had an 88% for Google users and 84% for Rotten Tomato users, 8.6 score overall. So just to recap, that was a 6.75 average for legacy between us, 8.25 for impact significance, 7.25 for novelty, 7.5 for classicness, a 9 for rewatchability, and an 8.6 for audience score. That gives us a final total of 47.35, and that would currently place it on the list. Tied with A Night at the Opera. Okay. Both would make me feel better if I watched. I'm not sure what to say about that. I don't think if you asked any general critic if those two movies would be tied in a greatness score, if they would ever believe us, but that's how it ended up. Well, it doesn't matter. So, remaining questions for this one. Why end the movie with winning The Division instead of the World Series? (laughs) Because you
1: can't overreach.
0: Why not? This is a fictional movie. Okay. If you're really making a movie just so that your team can win something, why not win the whole actual fucking thing? Well, that should have been what Major League 2 was.
1: I'm just saying. Any for you? No. I I guess the only thing I would ask is, is why the hell did you make 2 and 3 so bad? Well, I think that
0: the premise kind of played itself out. You can only sustain the premise for so long.
1: Yes and no, but I mean, ugh.
0: I really do think that you can make one really good season of television, which we got from Ted Lasso at least, And I would argue that the second season is a lot deeper and still has its own virtue, but is a lot different from season one. But you can get a really good season of television out of the premise. After that, unless you're basically just repeating the same thing, it would seem like running it back. And I don't think anyone would have bought into that anyway. My only other remaining question is simply, why would Lynn ever go back to Jake? I know we root for him in the movie, but he's a bum in real life. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, she's clearly got some intelligence and brains. She's dating a lawyer. Not necessarily that I would suggest anybody just go out and do that. But, you know, she's got some things going for her. Why does she choose to be with the ball player who is just kind of
1: a dink? I I don't know. I'm just going to leave it at that. Anyway, final thoughts for the week. As far as the movie itself, no. Uh, Again, we mentioned Bruce Willis. It's just kind of a sad commentary. He's nine years older than me, and his condition is usually caused by some sort of a stroke or brain injury, and it's just sad. You know, he's not the action star he was, but I enjoyed Reds, and I enjoyed Reds too, and and uh, some of the stuff he's done later in his career, and you know the idea or concept now is, is that he's just not going to be doing it anymore, and he's re- basically retired. We lost Bruce Willis. Um, my understanding is is that Jack Nicholson is not going to be doing anything anymore because Jack has difficulty remembering his lines. Uh, Gene Hackman is not is completely retired. He's ninety two. We have several decades of the biggest stars who are no longer going to be giving us their themselves and their performances on screen. And I'm sad by that.
0: I know. If you saw the Oscars over the weekend, Al Pacino's suit was wearing him. Yeah. By contrast, Bobby De Niro actually looks pretty good. But uh, all that being said, I do want to provide a clarifying point. Bruce Willis was not in the movie Reds from 1982 that was directed, written, and starring Warren Beatty. He was in the movie Red. Yes. Just in case you were confused that Bruce Willis would ever be associated with a communist.
1: (laughs) Okay. Anyway, and for that matter, uh, the Academy Awards, Liza Minnelli is looking very frail.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know why we keep having to present best picture with people that are barely able to get the words out of their mouth. Like, are they just asking for another Warren Beatty Faye Dunaway moment? I don't know. It's not that I'm like saying Liza Minnelli should be far away from the ceremony, but don't have her presenting the biggest award of the night. With that, I'll give my final thought. I was officially 20 and three in our pre Oscars preview voting or how we did our predictions. I was twenty one and two because I switched one at the end in my official ballot that I submitted for ESPN Fantasy. But unfortunately, the two I lost happened to be the categories that you somehow succeeded, and so I have lost the wager. And what is the <laughs> film that I am going to have
1: to endure? Glenn or Glenda? The Ed Wood film starring Bella Lugosi. You saw the uh, biopic with Johnny Depp and they film. Uh, Glenn or Glenda the presentation in the biopic is hilarious at my uh, every Monday I have a uh, meeting among the representatives in my law office and we meet in the conference room where I have my big screen 64 inch TV or 70 inch I can't remember what it is and I put it on and I had everybody watch 10 minutes of it before we started the meeting and everybody sends their condolences, Tom.
0: Thank you. I will be completing that challenge sometime in the near future. I haven't planned exactly out when that's going to happen yet. We have some uh, spinning plates yet to try and handle with some other obligations that we have coming up. But uh, that will be done as a special bonus episode for you. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to put that as wide release access. We may put it on a special feed that you have to like subscribe to. In order to get that one, but yes, my pain will be real, and yes, you will get to hear it, and no, you don't have to watch that movie in order to enjoy my pain.
1: Oh, but yes, it's it's it is quite uh, yeah entertaining. Yeah, and, and needless to say, I was quite rejoiced, and you can talk to your mother about the fact that I was yelling and jumping and screaming that I won. I
0: don't think I need to confirm that. I'm pretty sure I knew that was going to happen regardless. Anyway, that's a good place for us. You'll be hearing us again soon. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing probably the preeminent hockey movie of all time, Slapshot from 1977, directed by George Roy Hill, written by Nancy Dowd, starring Paul Newman and Strother Martin. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever, on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at Podcast.